This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Sasha Ghosh-Simonov. He's one of the few people talking about Idlib right now who has actually been there. He's the director of an aid organization that's been working in Syria for five years and he knows what he's talking about. He's going to tell us about Hayat Tahir el-Sham, the forces controlling Idlib in the majority right now, and the three million civilians who were there as the battle for Idlib looks like it's about to start quite soon. If you want to support Popular Front and keep it going, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. This episode was sponsored by defensepost.com. And please excuse my voice, my throat is wrecked. moment there's a lot of talk about the Idlib battle Um, apparently it's going to be starting soon there's a lot of people are kind of talking about that what's going on there right so at the moment obviously uh, there's been a lot of build-up of uh, forces on multiple sides first and foremost um, we've seen the Assad regime and their Iranian supported proxies move weapons and ground forces and material into place around uh, around the northwest uh, Syria opposition pocket, which includes uh, Idlib province and some small slivers of neighboring Hama province, neighboring Aleppo province, and neighboring Latakia province. So around that sort of semi-ring of uh, area that's held by the opposition, you have a series of observation posts that were put in place both by Turkey, Iran, and Russia. And it was designed to enforce a quote-unquote de-escalation zone, which was an agreement um, at Astana to find a way to achieve some sort of... uh, military lull long enough to allow for some sort of political process to move forward. Uh, All the other de-escalation zones, of course, have been um, dismantled either by force or what I call forcible reconciliation um, over the past year. And so now uh, this is the last quote-unquote de-escalation zone. Uh, The difference, though, being that you have Uh, Turkish observation posts, 12 of them in total, and they're uh, situated in a way that it makes it really hard for, like, any specific sort of ground game to happen without potentially coming into contact uh, with Turkish military forces, and at the moment the Turkish military have been building up um, some of their um, some of their military resources at specific observation posts in anticipation that there might be a ground assault. But Nothing is very clear, and of course there have been numerous talks between Turkey and Russia about what to do. Um, specifically, they highlight the presence of HTS and Hurasidin as two quote-unquote al-Qaeda-affiliated groups, and that their presence means that there needs to be some sort of um, action taken against them. I, Of course, I believe Russia, Iran, and the Assad regime want to take back this pocket, whether... HTS and Hurasuddin are present, but of course their presence does not help anything and makes things difficult for the opposition. Sure, well that would be a good um, point for us to talk about who is actually in control of Idlib, because I know HTS control a large part of it, but there are other groups as well, right? Right, so 
Idlib is an interesting scenario for a number of reasons. On the one hand, you have Hayat um, Tahrir Sham or HTS, which is the uh, latest uh, evolution of the original um, sort of AQ affiliated group Jabhat al-Nusra. Uh, it went through numerous sort of uh, alliances and uh, rebranding, and eventually it's become known as HTS, a splinter faction that are more loyal and more, you could say, quote-unquote, traditionalist um, of Al-Qaeda supporters within the HTS leadership broke off. They created this thing called Hurasadin, which they say they're the true Al-Qaeda affiliate in northwest Syria, and it's not clear um, the kind of relationship between HTS and Hurasadin. It's not very clear in the sense that sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're not, um, but everyone knows each other. It's a very tight-knit community, so um, definitely everyone still talks to each other, everyone knows each other. And then you have other groups, so sort of going forward on the spectrum from sort of Salafi jihadi conservatives to secular. Next up, we have like Turkestan Islamic Party, which is, or TIP, which is sort of a um, a Salafi jihadi group made mostly up of uh, foreign fighters from Central Asia. Uh, some, some ethnic Uyghurs are there, some uh, Chechens are there. Uh, other people from the caucuses are in TIP, and they mostly hew towards uh, supporting um, HTS, and recently in some of the fights between HTS and other opposition groups, uh, TIP in the beginning tried to stay neutral, and they eventually put their weight behind um, HTS. Now, TIP, one of the interesting things about them is they have some uh, strategic uh, positions that they hold in western Idlib province towards the front lines with the regime in sort of Latakia Idlib border and they're pretty tough guys so if there's a fight I suspect um, an attack by the regime would happen from all three sides eventually um, one of those attacks would probably come via the sort of Latakia Idlib border to enter Western Idlib, and I could foresee that um, one of the main defenders of sort of that that bulwark in the Western area of Idlib would actually be TIP. Um, after that, you have uh, other groups uh, who are still definitely more um, more Salafi in nature, but have um, you could say more moderate stance in the sense of that they um, are more Syrian and have more understanding of local Syrian traditions and cultures and are more flexible with how they deal with people on the ground. As example, Ahrar al-Sham and um, another group that they've allied themselves with, Nouradine Azanki. These two groups um, have a good presence either in Idlib province itself or um, opposition-held western Aleppo province, which was the uh, traditional stronghold of Nouradine Azenki. Those two groups formed an alliance called Syrian Liberation Front, and nominally they are supposed to be backed by Turkey, and um, they formed that group back in November of 2017, and they've been fighting on and off 
with uh, HTS for control of Idlib province. And then finally, you have um, some what we used to call Free Syrian Army groups or sort of more quote-unquote moderate Arab opposition groups that are pretty much backed by Turkey. Some of them used to have American and British support, but now are exclusively backed by Turkey. And they exist sort of on the peripheries of power, but they have a lot of potential because um, easily Turkey could push them and is pushing them to unite into one sort of unified faction the way they sort of did when organizing um, the opposition to take control of Afrin district through the um, Operation Olive Branch operation that occurred uh, back at the earlier part of this year. Is it correct to say that Hayat Tahir al-Sham control the majority of Idlib right now? Yes, I would say they control about 60% of Idlib province. Um, where they are weaker, you could say, is one, um, at the peripheries. So, ex- for example, they are uh, they definitely have less of a position in, let's say, uh, the opposition-held Hama area or Latakia area or um, western Aleppo area. And... Uh, Leading up to sort of the current contours of the Northwest Opposition Pocket, they had a significant presence in South uh, Eastern Idlib uh, near Abu Dhur Airport, which is a, a sizable airport that was of strategic military importance to both the regime and the opposition. And when um, sort of Turkey and Russia and Iran agreed to the sort of where they would put their observation posts, um, no one knows exactly for sure, but it seemed that there was an agreement to cede a certain amount of opposition-held territory uh, to the regime following sort of the Hama-Aleppo railway line that leads from uh, Hama City up to Aleppo City. And so uh, HTS had a big presence there, and they sort of withdrew from that area um, in the lead-up to the, to the positioning of uh, most of the observation posts. There's something I wanted to ask you as well, because I want to be very clear on who HTS is, because I keep seeing people refer to them sometimes as rebels. Now, I've seen their footage. I've kept up to date with what they've been up to. They don't look like any kind of rebels I've seen. You know, to be honest, I I would consider them jihadists myself, quite brutal at times. But perhaps you can shed some light on that. What are they actually doing and what is life like under HTS in Idlib? Right. So they're they're definitely complicated. Um on the one hand, they are a standalone group. They, their leadership definitely has links to Al-Qaeda. Um, Jolani specifically has links to Al-Qaeda. He was in Iraq during the insurgency there. He, he, he fought with Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, he has clear communications with Zawahiri and the Al-Qaeda uh, leadership. And Jelani was the leader when they were al-Nusra, right? Correct. And he still has a position within HTS, although that position fluctuates in prominence and importance depending on how public he thinks, it, how prominent he thinks his public profile could be a net positive or a net negative. So sometimes it, it's, it's more prominent, sometimes it's less. Uh, but so from that perspective, the leadership of HTS and, of course, its predecessor, Jabhat al-Nusra, had uh, definitive links to al-Qaeda. 
the tricky part becomes when you speak with Syrians about what HTS or what Jabhat al-Nusra means to them or how or how they view them. So in a lot of instances, and this is this is complex in the sense that as the conflict in Syria has evolved and as the the ground game from a military perspective has evolved, Syrians have made some pretty uh, difficult choices. And in a lot of instances, you had a lot of uh, rebel fighters who started out fighting, let's say, with the Free Syrian Army um, or other sort of moderate Islamic groups and slowly but surely drifted over either into the Ahrar al-Sham or Jabhat al-Nusra and then later HTS camp. Um, part of it has to do with the way in which the international community intervened um, in this conflict. Part of it has to do with the internal pressures of uh, rebel infighting and factionalization and the inability to form sort of united front that could sort of box out um, the seeping in of al-Qaeda's ideology. And part of it are the open borders that existed that for a while during this conflict allowed foreign fighters from around the globe to easily enter and access Syria and bring with them, frankly, their own ideology and their own concepts of what the Syrian struggle actually meant, as opposed to actually listening to Syrians themselves regarding what their struggle was about. But day-to-day life, if you ask um, people living under HTS, uh, they're not happy with uh, HTS rule. Uh, over the course of um, both Jabhat al-Nusra and HTS's history, if you speak with people and you talk with them uh, and you you look at kind of their ebbs and flows of popularity, you'll see that people are most happy with them uh, when they were on the front lines fighting the regime directly and having as little to do as possible with um, with with intervening in the daily life of people. From the perspective of uh, of the people on the ground, uh, living under HTS is uh, ex- it's it's not great. Um, as I was saying, you know, they're the most ha- happy with HTS or the previous iteration of Jabhat al-Nusra when they were on the front lines, focused on fighting the regime. Uh, because they, they didn't at that time, especially we're talking like 2013, 14, 15 period, they were really focused on on fighting the regime and showing that they were there to support the revolution. And they basically um, didn't get into the issue of social service provision or local governance uh, until sort of after the 2015 period. Uh, once the Russian intervention into the conflict begins, um, it does change a lot of dynamics on the ground. Um, It also changes the calculus from the U.S. Western Europe side about how much money they want to pour into projects and programming that are just being systematically bombed by the Russians. And and suddenly, in 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 a weird way, that intervention created an opening in which um, resources and capacities of moderate opposition forces and moderate local governance and civil society groups that were running things in opposition Idlib begin to um, begin to wane. And in its place, uh, you see basically HTS building 
up and um, and creating social service um, provision systems that are there to basically co-opt and replace local governance and civil society structures that up until um, that period of time had been basically providing everyone access to food, access to water, access to electricity, some form of dispute arbitration, some form of local governance. And since you can say about middle of 2016, HGS has worked very hard to try and co-opt as many local governance and social service provision structures as they can, uh, as they have simultaneously put down by force most of the potential competitors um, within the opposition from a military perspective. So in the beginning, Jabotinosa and HTS seemed to know that trying to provide social services while simultaneously fighting the regime and fending off um, armed opposition competitors was just not a good strategy. So they focused on fighting the regime, building their credibility. Then they focused on fighting for control of military space within the opposition-held areas. And then as the sort of other opposition uh, groups either lost funding from outside actors or um, internal infighting weakened them, they then targeted them one by one and put them down. Or they made agreements with them to prevent, um, prevent sort of their people being targeted. And then finally they've worked to co-op all these different um, local governance and social service uh, structures. So I wouldn't call them opposition per se. Um, at the same time, people in Syria and especially Idlib have had a very love-hate relationship with them and their willingness to cooperate with them or oppose them has gone up and down depending on what the other contours of the conflict look like. Um, at the moment, people have worked to protest Jabhat al-Nusra slash HTS, and you still continue to see civil resistance to HTS, but over the last year especially, it's gotten increasingly harder uh, to do that, and there's a lot of activists and journalists who've either gone into exile or have been arrested as a result of their opposition to HTS rule. Right, so it's a pretty strict kind of uh, oppressive way of life they're trying to put out there if you try and go against them right and it's not in sync with uh traditional syrian culture or values even in a place like idlib which i grant you was um more traditional more conservative before the revolution um i've always found people in idlib to be quite independent minded and not particularly interested in having anyone tell them what to do. And I think they really chafe under sort of this direct rule that um, HTS has imposed. And again, a friend of mine told me an interesting story. She said that, let's take for example, she's from Sarakib, which is a, a medium-sized town, relatively high education, people with a decent amount of money, um, it was also a city and town that had um, multiple political views, multiple political parties, um, and they were one of the 
towns that directly protested and was at the forefront of the initial protest movement against the Assad regime in 2011. Now, in their city, they wear the hijab, uh, the traditional covering that women wear, um, in a specific way. Uh, they don't wear it, you could say, as tightly around their heads as people uh, in other parts of Idlib do. You can still see some of their hair, yeah. And so she was traveling along a road with some friends. They were going to conduct some some workshops for, for a civil society organization. And they were stopped at um, a checkpoint that was manned by a, a Jabhat al-Nusra uh, commander and fighters, but he was Syrian. And so when he stopped them, uh, he looked at them and, and, you know, they chatted and they said, where are you going? And she said, we're going to this place and blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, he looked at her and he said, look, I know you're from Soraka because I see how you're covering your hair. And I know this is like your culture and your way. And, and that's fine. But you should know, like, if you meet other Jabal Nusra people at other checkpoints and they're not from Syria, they're going to give you a hard time for the way in which you're wearing your hijab. And so that's this weird sort of um, situation where you have like locals, Syrians, who may be part of Jabal Nusra, who kind of like, who definitely understand the nuances of the culture in Idlib and in those peripheral areas where the opposition is still in control. And they know that they need to be flexible because if they get into a fight with locals, it could turn into a much bigger fight. You know, for example, if they had arrested um, my friend and her and her her friends, maybe their family, which is a big extended family in Sarakib, would, you know, uh, pick a fight with the local local Jabatunusra HTS fighters in Sarakib city simply to say you you shouldn't mess with our family, you shouldn't mess with our traditions and our cultures. Um, and then you have foreign fighters who are in HTS who know nothing about any of this stuff and um, take a very hard line, very rigid, inflexible way of dealing with people. And it creates a lot of um, bad blood and often creates a lot of problems. And then HTS needs to go and uh, mediate um, to prevent like local conflicts spiraling out of control into much larger conflicts that then take up time and resources. So it sounds to me less like the locals of Idlib are like, yeah, let's have jihadis here. It sounds more like they're kind of just, you know, in a rock and a hard place. It's like, well, they need things to keep going. They need society to keep going forward so they can have food and whatever. But at the same time, they don't want the regime and there's not really anybody else around them that's going to step in. Yeah, this is one of the major points that I think people need to understand. In the beginning, when the foreign fighters were first coming, People were fine with them to come as long as they were coming to fight. And so what they said is, look, if they're willing to come and support us and they're willing to come fight for, for our cause, this is a very important point, for our cause, overthrowing the Assad regime and allowing us to be liberated from the Assad regime, we're for it. It was also at a time in which, first, they didn't have a lot of outside support from anyone in the international community or that support was, you could say... Um, not very consistent and so when these guys showed up they said well at least someone cares enough about our situation to come fight and help for us we've asked the United States we've asked Britain we've asked Western Europe to intervene 
in a definitive way to allow this conflict to end. No one has shown up to help us. These guys have shown up. But then later, when they did show up and you start seeing uh, local groups disappearing or their command leadership switching from local Syrians to foreign fighters, then you start hearing people say, oh, this is probably not a good idea or this is not what we we signed up for, this is not what we thought um, would be sort of the relationship we would have between us and these guys who came, who we thought we, they had come to support us in our, our mission, our movement, our fight. And that's where I think you start seeing people becoming really upset um, with the presence of the foreign fighters, but by that point it's too late. Um, the other opposition armed groups are either underfunded, under-resourced, or just don't have the capacity to to marshal enough force to push Jabhatunusra and later HTS out, and um, and slowly but surely, one by one, they each kind of get either you know dissolved or they have to make alliances of convenience in order to stay alive long enough to be present. And a number of the of the Free Syrian Army groups, either they joined a Harasham or Zenki or or they or they moved to the Turkish controlled Euphrates Shield area of uh, northern Aleppo province simply because it was either that or 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 joined Jabhat Nusra and they didn't want to do that. So they said, Okay, these are our options, we're just gonna leave. But the civilians can't leave and they have to deal with now have to deal with HTS and and their presence. So it's really difficult. And for the civilians also, they're like, hey, we need social service provision. We need some form of rule of law. Do we want this type of rule of law? No, not really, but we need something. And we don't have better options. And now that the international community, much of the international community has started pulling resources and funding out of uh, the Northwest pocket, it has in a way accelerated that process of HTS taking over those social services and people saying, well, I might have had someone else like the local council or someone else to go to to get my daily bread, but now I don't even have that. Right, and it, it plays into the hands of HTS propaganda as well. Like they can just say, look, the West doesn't care about you. They withdrew all of the food and what, you know, the aid. And I can understand why if you're a civilian down there, you'll be like, oh, yeah, they're right. Yeah, and this has been sort of from day one what a number of us who've, who work in aid and development or with civil society have been advocating is that, first of all, there needs to be a consistent ideological challenge to these people. Even if it seems like a, a tough road, just having the ability for anyone to provide resources and support that doesn't have to go through an HTS channel continues to be important and and second of all we're like if if we if we as the international community don't engage we're leaving a whole generation of children to grow up under this ideology with with no one to say this is not right this is wrong and this is out of sync with the normative cultural values that are found in this part of syria and that's the real shame and so it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy you say that you're going to t withdraw support from an area because quote-unquote terrorism is present then you get 
upset with terrorism presence so you go bomb the area then you have to fix the area it's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy and, and and a very bad cycle that results in in my opinion more extremism and 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 more and more conflict rather than mitigating it and maybe you can give us an idea of the size of idlib and how many people live there because you know, if this battle does take place, which it's looking like it's going to any time now, it's going to be a huge, huge mess, right? Idlib, before the war, was about a million and a half people total for the entire province. Now with the current uh, Northwest Opposition Pocket, which as I said includes um, most of Idlib province, a, a portion of Western Aleppo province, Hama, uh, a sliver of Hama province and a sliver of uh, Latakia province, you're talking about almost 3 million people. And a number of those people, perhaps as high as 40 to 50% of those people, are Syrians who have already been displaced from other provinces by this conflict and either had nowhere else to go, so they ran to the opposition-held uh, pocket, or they were through the reconciliation deals and the forced displacement in recent years with the with the Russians and the the Assad regime they took their families and left for example you have people from Daraya and Modamia and from eastern Ghouta all these areas are in uh, Damascus suburbs and they're now all living in uh, in this pocket you have the people who were ejected from eastern Aleppo uh, city in December of 2016, at least I think 50,000 of them, if not more, fled um, the city and they ended up uh, in this pocket. So you, it's not just people from Idlib, you have people from probably almost every province uh, in Syria sitting in Idlib and it was like the last place they could run to. So it's it's a it's a massive humanitarian catastrophe waiting to happen. And another important point is even though this has been a quote unquote de-escalation zone for almost a year, um, it hasn't stopped Russia from conducting airstrikes. It hasn't stopped Assad from conducting airstrikes, all of which they say are under the guise of quote unquote fighting terrorism. Um, so the the pain and suffering that these people have experienced hasn't dissipated simply because it was a de-escalation zone. I think Idlib raises a lot of really interesting questions in that respect though as well because you know like like we've already established HTS are not the happy secular rebels that were around at the start of the revolution at all and the other people in control people like Zenki I mean what was it last year they filmed they were filmed you know or filmed themselves cutting a teenager's head off you know this this is a problem you know these people are a problem and like you said the civilians necessarily don't want them there but what can they do how can it be sorted you know what do you think needs to happen because you've you've actually you're one of the few people I know who talks about Idlib who has been there what do you think needs to be done so I think realistically uh Turkey has a big role to play in what's going on um, in Idlib. They, uh, first of all, they share a long border with Syria, and a, a significant piece of that border is with uh, Idlib. Uh, they're very well aware of who's present in the Idlib pocket. They communicate with a lot of them. Uh, certainly, they had to communicate with almost every faction in Idlib when they were setting up 
their observation posts over the past six months. Yeah, there's that video where um, HTS are giving Turkish troops a kind of, it's like a corridor, right? Correct. And so from that perspective, um, I think Turkey, if they wanted to organize, you know, what's left of the quote-unquote moderate Arab opposition and rally them in a way to to deal with HTS and Hrasadin once and for all, I think they could do it. And I think, although that that may not seem like the best option politically to a lot of people, I just don't see a better option other than doing this via Turkey, uh, unless the Americans or Western Europe have a plan that would involve, you know, them pumping in millions and millions and millions of more dollars and setting up basically a new opposition liberation force, which I just don't foresee them doing. And even if they wanted to do it, they would still need Turkey's cooperation. So <coughs> at this juncture, I think um, if if uh, if the United States, Turkey, and Western Europe could have a conversation and agree with Turkey on the parameters under which um, they would deal with HTS and move towards providing some sort of stabilization support to the Northwest pocket in exchange for Turkey um, basically getting rid of HTS and Hrasadin. I think that's not a bad strategy. And it could also potentially forestall any sort of uh, ground offensive by the Assad regime and the Iranians with Russian-backed air power if Turkey did say, look, we're going to take care of this. At least, at least if... If they did it like that, it might push Russia to a place where they say, well, our interest is maintaining a good relationship with Turkey. If the regime and the Iranians want to move forward with a ground offensive, that's fine, but we don't want to provide air support for such a thing because we would prefer to preserve our relationship with Turkey instead. And if it was a one-on-one -on -one fight, ground versus ground with no air support, I think uh, the Assad regime has a less than stellar record when it comes to fighting without air support. I think it would be tricky for them. And I think the, the resources they would have to expend to do it um, may not be worth it for them, at least immediately. It could, it could buy the pocket maybe another six months while they figure things out. But for Turkey to, like you said, deal with HTS, I mean, that means, what, going in and killing them all, no? Yes, to a degree. I mean, at least dealing with their core leadership. Um, but the question becomes, what do you do with the with the thousands of, of HTS fighters, many of them who are local Syrians? Uh, I'm not sure that killing them all is is truthfully an option, given the kind of societal strife no me either S such a plan would would cause i think we would have to come up with a way a, a a proper way to demobilize de-radicalize and reintegrate these people good luck doing I, that I, in I, syria I, right I, now i don't and, and that's that's a massive task don't get me wrong i know it is but if we if if let's say hts does have let's say ten thousand fighters and 8,000 of them at least are 
Syrians. I mean, that means that you have thousands and thousands of families that are indirectly connected to HTS and would take, would have a problem with their brothers and cousins and fathers being wiped out with no ability to have a chance to, to, to reintegrate somehow into society after going through some sort of process. Of course. Um, before you were telling me an interesting story about this lad that was FSA, then he joined um, HTS and then he kind of left because he didn't like the way they were doing things. Maybe you can uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I think this is another reason why I'm hopeful that if you had a scenario in which... Um, HTS could be dismantled, there would be a way to kind of bring the Syrians who had fought for HTS back from the brink and push them towards um, a de-radicalization uh, program and have them reintegrate. And that's because I've, I've, I've been told numerous stories about how throughout the revolution and this conflict, a lot of Syrians never really had the opportunity to like expand and think about their political beliefs and their ideologies and that was because that's you couldn't have those thoughts and discussions living under the Assad regime without getting in trouble and so when the revolution happened there was all these people that suddenly were like oh I can I can think about these things I can discuss these things and it was sort of like everyone suddenly had the opportunity to explore their beliefs, but it was happening in a very dangerous and uh, complex time. And so, as an example, I think that I told you, uh, a friend's brother, um, basically, he he started out in Free Syrian Army. Um, then later, he uh, he he got he was annoyed with the kind of the command structure, and so he left the Free Syrian Army. He went back home for a bit he actually got in trouble at one point and was put in prison for a little bit for petty theft then later a friend of his came and told him oh there's these guys Jabhat al-Nusra they're more serious than the FSA they're like very good they're very strong and you know but he he's a young guy like many people in Idlib they wanted to still fight the regime but they wanted to do it in a way that it would be somewhat successful so he said, fine, he went, he joined them, he fought with them for a while. Uh, then he became disillusioned also with the way in which they did things, and he left them, and again, he went back home, wasn't quite sure what he believed in, wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do with his life. Um, then he decided, um, he decided basically to go back to working, and uh, he started working basically for... Um, a human rights documentation group, a local one that like keeps track of civilian deaths. And I think this is a very important um, story in the sense that it highlights that um, people don't exactly still know who they are, what they believe in. They're still trying to figure it out. And I think there's a lot of people um, in Idlib, in this opposition-held area, that are still trying to figure out what all of this means, what's their identity, and that gives the international community opportunity to 
reduce the number of people who adhere to extremist thought by engaging them now and by continuing to engage them over a long period of time so that people do feel there's a, a way out, that there are better options, that this isn't the only path available to them. Yeah, definitely. I think people, myself included at times, to be honest, which is a fault, um, but people can oversimplify it as if it's like this blood in, blood out, jihadi, jihadi, you know, you jihadi sort of thing, you know what I mean? I think people forget that, you know, there's a whole culture and country going on behind the scenes here. Like you said, a lot of young people joined the revolution very early on. And I don't know, at times they just wanted to survive, I think, as well, you know? Yeah, I, I try to explain it, especially to people in the West, like it's, if you look at inner city gang violence, uh, a lot of people, first, they come from difficult circumstances, they come from poverty, they come from broken homes, or just maybe difficult homes in difficult neighborhoods, and they need a sense of belonging, or they need, they need to be with a group that will protect them and defend them, and they end up joining a gang, and they end up in a world and a life of violence they really didn't anticipate joining, but there was all these other things in their environment that kind of led them down to that road. And then you have people who get out of that life, and they explain, this was why I joined, and now that I know this life and this experience and what it can lead to, I'm going to push other people in my community not to tra travel the path that I went down. And I think if we look at some of what's going on um, in the Middle East and especially Syria through that lens, we might be a little bit more um, understanding of the situation and come up with more holistic and frankly effective strategies for mitigating extremism and terrorism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now, just, just speaking to a few people, yourself included, and checking online, mostly it's either basically jihadi apologism like oh no hts are just rebels absolutely not or it's they're all jihadis kill them all immediately you know there doesn't seem to be any middle ground it's like well you know we can't just keep doing this you know this is why syria is in such a mess i reckon right and that's the other point it's like if there's ten thousand hts fighters okay that's a problem but ten thousand doesn't equal three million people who are sitting there the civilians yeah Right. So if 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 the issue is, oh, well, I guess we're going to have, you know, we're going <laughs> to we're going to have to kill 10, you know, 3 million people to deal with 10,000 fighters. I mean, A, that, that's just not sensible. And B, what does that say about the international community and our, our humanity as a whole, if that's the route we're going to take? You've actually been to Idlib. You did some work there, right? What was it like before all this happened? Well, yeah, I uh, I was attending Aleppo University uh, for an Arabic study abroad program in January of 2011. And um, in my dorm were uh, many people from Idlib, and so they would uh, invite me back, back to Idlib on the weekends. So I would go there. And... And Idlib is, is an interesting place. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a small, relatively rural province, but at the same time, um, you have differences and nuances within the local culture. Um, Idlib city, Sarakib, Meretinoman, um, uh, these are like three major towns. Jisra Shogor is another one. They're a little bit more urban, you can feel that the people in those towns are definitely uh, more educated and perhaps have a bit more money. 
um, they have, and they're a little bit, you could say, more secular or at least uh, more flexible with their uh, with their ideals. And so you have them on the one hand. On the other hand, you can go to areas like Jabazawi, um, and people are very uh, very much more conservative, more traditional. Um, in Jebel Zawi region, for example, you have like 40 villages and each one has two major families that are always fighting and um, and they mostly are working in agriculture. They have even to a degree their own sort of dialect um, in and of itself, their own way of dealing with one another. And then you can go to um, to you know to the south of Idlib towards the border with Hama and uh, they may have more in common with the people across the border in Hama province than they do with people in the north of Idlib. So it's a very, it's a very complex place, and, it was, and the people there were exceedingly nice. Uh, they treated me with full respect, they, <laughs> despite me being an American, <laughs> and, you know, we had honest conversations about the Middle East. Uh, at the time, we had a lot of discussions about the Iraq War, why America had invaded Iraq, what was America's intentions um, towards the Middle East. But one of the main things that I think was very interesting was they understood that there's a difference between the government and the people. And that was the thing that they always came back to. They said, you might be an American, but you're not the American government. And they said, we understand this because we tell people all the time, we're Syrians, but we're not the Syrian regime. There's a difference, and we want people to understand that difference. I think we should wrap that up there. I think that was really interesting. But before we do, is there anything else you just want to mention? I mean, I think the only thing I, I want to reemphasize is what a humanitarian disaster this would be if, uh, if, this, if this attack, this campaign goes forward. I mean, I think the international community owes it to the Syrian people to find a way to uh, to find a different way moving forward to deal with this pocket. I think um, leaving a generation of children to sit in IDP camps in Idlib, um, either under the rule of HTS or at the mercy of the Assad regime, those shouldn't have to be the only two choices these people have on the ground. You have all these civil society organizations the United States and the West supported, we should continue supporting those civil society organizations. We should continue engaging with people on the ground and finding ways of, um, of supporting, um, supporting these institutions that still have some of the vestiges of the original tenets of the revolution and are definitely supportive of a more pluralistic and open society. I think uh, just leaving everyone there to those two options is is really bad, and um, and there's definitely another way. We should find another way. Brilliant. Thank you very much, mate. Um, where can people get hold of you and follow your work? Sure. Um, people can uh, follow me on Twitter at ss Simonoff, or you can find some of our articles and some of the things my colleagues and I are writing or some of our work on our organization's website, which is www.peopledemandchange.com. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, you. That was Sasha talking about the current dilemma in Idlib 
You've got jihadists on one side, the brutal regime on the other, and a lot of civilians stuck in between. This episode was sponsored by thedefensepost.com, defense with an S. If you want to support Popular Front, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. We've got bonus episodes, narrated articles, all sorts of stuff going on there. There's also a Discord group now, which is quite interesting. It's quite a laugh. Thank you very much to the highest tier Patreons. They are Teddy, Aliame Leroy, Daniel Shearer, Joanne Stocker, Margaret Bolin, Kjetil, Zachary Hinch, Stephen Henderson, LH, Joel Tambusi, Cole Gannon and Ryan Sandercock. Thank you very much. Please follow us on social medias. You can follow me to keep up to date with Popular Front stuff and all the other nonsense I talk about. That is at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N is how you spell my surname. For the Popular Front Twitter, that is at Popular Front CO, like the website, which is popularfront.co. You'll find all the episodes and any other information there. You can follow us on YouTube as well. That's where the documentary is going to be out this month. That is September. Um, the doc is called Bogside Bonfire. I think you'll like it. That is youtube.com slash popularfront. Also, we're on Instagram. Uh, that is at popular.front. Music in this episode. The intro was by the synthwave artist Home. And the outro is by my friend Son of Old. See his SoundCloud. That is soundcloud.com slash sun dash of dash old sun spell s-u-n you know is in the thing in the sky 